God. One of the great blessings of sitting round tables is that uh, we can juggle more pieces of paper than we could if we were sitting in pews. So uh, please do have Isaiah 40 open in front of you. Uh, have the back page of the pink question sheet in front of you and also the outline on the inside of the white bulletin. Those three things. And I'll ask for God's help. (coughs) Loving Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. Please help us to listen. Help us to understand, not just in our heads, but deeply in our hearts what you want to say to us and help us to live accordingly for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as you know, I think by now this morning we're starting a new series under the title The Majesty of God. Um, Earlier this year we looked at a rather striking comment on the spiritual health of Western culture. The author actually is a South African called David Wells and it comes from a book called God in the Wasteland and I want to begin this morning by reminding you of what he said because it explains I think rather well why we need to spend eight Sunday mornings on this tremendous theme, the majesty of God. This is what he says. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is like a ghost, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence nevertheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. Now, I don't know how you feel about that comment, but it does seem to me that what he says is right on target. Uh, We might know the great truths of the Gospel. We might know our Bibles really well. Uh, We might enjoy learning Christian truth. And we might be able to explain the Gospel with impressive clarity when called upon to do so. But isn't it also true that, that so often there is a disturbing gap between our theology and our living. What we say we believe hasn't really penetrated to the core of our being to the point where our lives reflect our message. So, for example, if you ask the average pastor in Cape Town today how he spends his time, he's going to tell you that he spends more and more time every year on pastoral counselling. So, instead of being able to give his energies to the ministry of the word, he's had to become a full-time therapist. Why has that happened? 
Can I suggest that part of the reason is that increasing numbers of Christians are looking for answers to life's challenges in all the wrong places. Um, However knowledgeable they might be about Christian truth, the plain fact of the matter is that God is weightless in their lives. So the great question is, is there a cure? Well, in my opinion, John Piper is surely one of the most experienced pastors alive in the world today, and this is his assessment of the situation on the back of the pink question sheet. He says, people are starving for the greatness of God. Now, this is interesting. But most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market. But the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. In other words, according to John Piper, the cure for the disturbing gap between our faith and our living is a growing appreciation for the majesty of God or for the greatness of God. Now, I think that's rather fresh. Um, I certainly haven't heard anybody else say it quite like that. But if he's right... I can't think of a more important thing for us to be doing on Sunday mornings than a series on the greatness of God. And so in this series, what we're going to be doing is looking at a number of different Old Testament passages. And uh, if I do my job properly, well, each one of these passages will show us why the God of the Bible is the only safe refuge in the storms and challenges of life. Now, our passage this morning is one of the classic texts in the Old Testament on the greatness of God. And uh, as the title of our study suggests, its great theme is the incomparability of God. In other words, Isaiah is teaching us that All our attempts to compare God to anyone or anything are fundamentally misguided. Now that, I think, is a great challenge for all of us. Because, you see, our natural tendency is to think about God in human categories. Uh, By nature, we tend to compare God to people or to experiences that are familiar to us. How many times have you heard people describe God as the man upstairs? Or talk about him as if he's their personal friend, their mate, uh, someone they can call on for a favour whenever they need it. Uh, So when I play golf on Friday mornings, which is my day off, uh, just occasionally, just occasionally, my tee shot will miss the fairway and it will head for the nearest tree. And again, just occasionally, instead of going out of bounds, the ball will strike a branch and it will bounce into the middle of the fairway. It's actually happened more times than I care to admit. And invariably, one of the other people I'm playing with will say something like this, oh, well, of course, he's a pastor. Uh, The man upstairs is on his side. 
Now, I know in one sense they're just having a little joke at my expense. But there are, of course, two immediate problems with that. The first is that God doesn't like it. Notice that twice in our passage, Isaiah confronts us with the same question. I wonder if you picked it up. Come with me to verse 18, where Isaiah asks, To whom, then, will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? Or then again, verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Now, in each case, we're left to supply the answer, which is, of course, no one and nothing. We cannot compare Almighty God to anyone or anything. And just as you and I get rather fed up when people start saying things about us which are untrue or distorted, how much more is that the case with God? But the second problem is that our comparisons always make God out to be very, very small. Uh, Just a slightly bigger version of us. So, uh, not very special really. And if God is only a slightly bigger version of me, can I really trust him? And you see, if we carry on down that road far enough, well, doubt begins to set in, and we start saying, well, does he really know about my problems? And if he does, does he actually have the power to do anything to put them right? Now, that is the mindset that Isaiah 40 is addressing. Just to sketch in the background for you, at this point in the book, God is anticipating Israel's situation in exile in Babylon. And God knows ahead of time that in those hostile surroundings, some people will begin to question whether God has forgotten them. Uh, And Israel's complaint is there for you in verse 27. People will be saying, My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. In other words, does God really know about my situation? Does he have the will and the power to help me? And, of course, it's because so many Christians think that the answer to both of those questions is no, that God has become weightless in their minds and in their hearts, and they cast around for other solutions. So that is the situation that God is addressing through Isaiah in our passage this morning, and he does it with a crash course on what God is really like. That's why, look at the end of verse 9, I wonder if you noticed it. That's why at the end of verse 9, Isaiah says, Here is your God. Now verses uh, 10 and 11 are really an executive summary of the entire chapter, and they really are worth taking away and meditating on and memorising. Because, you see, those two verses are inviting us to hold two truths together about God. These two things appear on the surface to be opposites. 
And what this passage is saying is that we must never, never separate them if we're ever going to get a grasp on what God is actually like. The first truth about God in verse 10 is that he is the Sovereign Lord. Uh, That, of course, is the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. And uh, it's used to describe his unstoppable power to fulfil all his promises. In other words, when God promises to rescue his faithful people, nothing will stand in his way. So, verse 10 begins, See, the Sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm (coughs) rules for him. Now, of course, as as New Testament Christians, we know, don't we, that every one of God's promises are fulfilled for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So every single time somebody puts their faith in Jesus, that is evidence, isn't it, that God is the Sovereign Lord. Do you follow But at first sight, it's not especially easy, is it, to reconcile that idea with the second truth about God that Isaiah gives us in verse 11. Verse 11 says, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Now that, you see, is a very beautiful picture of the all-powerful Sovereign Lord caring for his people individually and personally. Because, you see, at the heart of God is an inexhaustible love for each one of us. That's why, of course, the Lord Jesus, in John chapter 10, says, I am the Good Shepherd. I know my sheep. And they know me, and I lay down my life for my sheep. So you see, when when lambs get tired, the shepherd doesn't just leave them to sort themselves out, no. He carries them lovingly and with great tenderness. And that, of course, is what God does for you and me. And you see, it's when we get those two truths out of balance that all the problems in our Christian lives begin. You see, if we know that God is the Sovereign Lord, but we forget that he's willing to carry us through all our hardships, well, God seems very remote, terribly distant. Or at the other extreme, if, yes, we know that he is the great shepherd who cares for us, but forget that he's the Sovereign Lord... Well, God seems really rather impotent, rather weak, and we don't bother asking him for help. So can you see that in both cases, unless we get the balance right, in the end we'll wander off the track. Now that's the executive summary, and with that executive summary clear in our minds, we can spend just a few minutes seeing how Isaiah explains and applies that message under three simple headings. Number one, God has incomparable power. God has incomparable power. 
Now, I wonder if you noticed that in our passage, Isaiah gives five comparisons to demonstrate that God is greater than anything we can possibly think of. Just uh, follow them through with me in the text. In verse 12, he says, God is greater than creation. Verse 15, he is greater than all the nations. Verses 19 and 20, he's greater than all our idols, that is, any of the things that we worship by giving them far too much of our time, effort and energy. Verse 23, he's greater than all the rulers of the earth. Verse 26, he's greater than the entire universe. In other words, whatever you can possibly think of, God is greater. But if we stop there, we only get half the thrust of what Isaiah is trying to tell us. Just look at verse 12. The description before us in verse 12 is there in order to blow our minds. So please just take your hand and hold it like that for a moment. Are we all doing it? Now, what, what could you hold in there? Uh, a few drops of water, perhaps? Well, the scientists tell us, don't they, that three quarters of the surface of the Earth is covered by water, by these amazing oceans. David Attenborough has been telling us all about them. And God says, I can hold all the oceans and more in the hollow of my hand. Or to give another illustration, Isaiah says, um, what can you measure between your thumb and your little finger? Pencil, maybe? And God says, well, between my thumb and my little finger, I can mark off the heavens. The vastness of the universe, which you and I can never really begin to get our minds around, which no spaceship can ever get to the end of, all of that fits neatly between God's thumb and his little finger. And uh, what could you perhaps carry home from the supermarket in your Woolworths shopping bag? Maybe a, a few pounds of groceries. And uh, when you've unpacked the shopping, what could you perhaps weigh out on your kitchen scales at home? Uh, maybe just a few ounces of butter, sugar, whatever it is. But God can carry all the dust of the earth in his shopping basket. And when he gets home and he gets out his kitchen scales, if he has them, instead of just a few ounces of butter, God says, well, okay, let's start with Table Mountain, uh, Kilimanjaro, Mount Kenya, the Alps, the Pyrenees and the Rockies, and we've only just got started. Now, what is the point? Is Isaiah simply trying to impress us with how big God is? Well, that is, that is true. God is big. But that isn't the point. The point is that whatever you can hold in the hollow of your hand or mark off between your thumb and little finger or weigh on your kitchen scales or carry in your shopping bag, those are all things over which you have total control. That's the point. Verse 12 is saying that God has complete power over everything. 
Now think about that. Isn't it true that so many Christians treat God really rather like a sort of a recreational activity? Uh, he's a bit like jogging or golf. You know, he's something rather nice to do when there's nothing else in the diary. And verse 12 is saying that attitude is completely foolish. Verse 12 is saying that the best investment that any human being can make is to invest everything in God's cause, to subordinate everything to him. Why? Because God wins every time. The passage is also saying to us that it's equally unwise to allow ourselves to be intimidated by other people. It's a key lesson, I think, for all of us, isn't it? Come with me to verse 22. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. Now the commentators have had lots of fun with the grasshoppers. Uh, Some have suggested that the original word ought to be translated as squeaky little creatures jumping up and down. Now, you and I are so often intimidated, aren't we, by people who are in authority over us. Uh, It could be somebody at work, it might be a lecturer at college, it might be somebody in your family. And these people can loom so very large in our thinking. But you see, from God's point of view, they're only squeaky little creatures jumping up and down. So when it uh, really counts, who has the last word? And you see, as we face all the uncertainties in this country, and there are plenty of them, of course, violent crime, the weakness of the economy, uh, corruption, please remember that God, this God, is in control of the whole thing. He has incomparable power. But secondly, he also has incomparable knowledge. You see, Isaiah wants us to understand that the creation of the universe wasn't just a display of God's power. He wants us to remember that wherever we look, there is unavoidable evidence of design and order. In other words, behind the the splendour of everything that you and I can see and marvel at, there is a unique mind. And I think perhaps it's that more than anything else that the atheists can't accept. And so Isaiah playfully says in verse 13, Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? He's saying that when God first had the idea, who on earth did he draft in to sit on the creation of the universe committee? Was it perhaps somebody in your office? Or verse 14, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Which firm of consultants did God use? Which advertising agency did God call in to test the concept in focus groups? The question, of course, is absurd. 
But Isaiah answers it, doesn't he, in his own way, in verse 26. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Now that, you see, is a beautiful description of God's intimate and personal knowledge of absolutely everything in creation. And when I read that, I can't help but remembering the time hundreds of years before when Abraham, as an old man, was beginning to wonder whether God really would keep his promise and give him a son. You remember the story. And uh, God told him to go and stand outside his tent. And he said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. So Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars, and yet God would still know each one intimately, by name, personally. Now you see, my friend, whether you've put your trust in God or not, God knows everything about you, everything. All your joys, all your hurts, all your weaknesses, your strengths. And he knows exactly what you need right now. But the sceptic, of course, uh, won't let the matter rest. And he will say, well, that's all very well, Simon. But the real question is, is he going to do anything about it? And that brings us to the third observation Uh, on this text, which is that God offers incomparable comfort. Incomparable comfort. Look at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, Chapter 40, verse 1, begins with God offering a word of comfort to the people of God in exile. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, of course, in our mind, um, that word comfort belongs to the world of fabric conditioners. Um, It conjures up the image, doesn't it, of softness and a rather pleasant fragrance that you take out of the washing machine at the end of the cycle. Or perhaps when you hear the word, um, the word comfort, you know, you think of a, a delicious cup of hot chocolate by a warm fire in the middle of winter. Uh, I was feeling rather discouraged this week and for the first time in my life I went into Seattle and I had a a cup of hot chocolate. I'd never had one there before. It was absolutely delicious and I did indeed feel rather comforted. But we have to say that is not what Isaiah is talking about here. Because the word comfort literally means with strength. So God, you see, is promising to strengthen his people And that is the idea that is unpacked in such beautiful words, really, in verses 27 to 31, right at the other end of the chapter. So to the people who think God has forgotten all about them and isn't really bothered, Isaiah comes in with a rebuke in verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? To which the answer, of course, is... Of course you do, because I've told you many times before. What have I told you? The Lord 
is the everlasting God. In other words, he is unchanging. He's the same powerful sovereign Lord today that he's always been. And because he has unlimited strength and he will never grow tired, he will give that strength to others. But who does he give that strength to? Verse 29, notice this. He gives his strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Now, Isaiah there is not talking about people who are physically exhausted after the two, com- two oceans marathon or whatever it is. No, God is especially strengthening those people who often feel defeated by life and almost at the end of their tether. Now, don't mishear me. That doesn't mean that God waits until our faces are in the dirt before he's willing to strengthen us. It doesn't mean that. It simply means that most of us are not willing to acknowledge our need until our lives fall apart. But you see, the problem with always relying on our human capabilities is that at some point they will invariably let us down. And that, of course, is the picture in verse 30. Have a look at it. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But, verse 31, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Or perhaps a literal translation would be, those who wait on the Lord will change their strength. It's rather hard to illustrate this, but the picture, I think, is of somebody who finds... They've got to carry a very heavy suitcase and they say, I'm just going to wait until Mariano arrives and then he can help me and we'll lift it out together. And in exactly the same way, you see, the person who hopes in the Lord lifts up their situation to God and waits for new strength from him to deal with the situation. In fact, Isaiah goes on from there, doesn't he, and says those who wait on the Lord will soar on wings like eagles. Now that doesn't mean they're suddenly going to grow a set of wings and fly like a bird. It means rather that they're going to experience a supernatural inner power to deal with everything that life might throw at them and not be defeated by it. Now, isn't that what we all need this week? Can I hear an amen? Thank you very much. I mean, isn't that what you need at work? Isn't that what you need in your family problem? You see, my friends, the antidote to the weightlessness of God in our lives is to fix our minds on his greatness and on his majesty. And that begins as we learn to wait on the Lord moment by moment, day by day, and begin to experience the supernatural strength that he gives to enable us to meet every situation and circumstance we might have to face. The strength comes from him. Let me close this morning with a true story. A number of years ago, uh, John Piper felt that he 
should preach on the greatness of God from Isaiah, probably from this chapter, uh, to his congregation at Bethlehem Baptist. And he picks up the story in his own words. Quote, I didn't realise that not long before this Sunday, one of the young families in our church discovered that their child was being sexually abused by a close relative. It was incredibly traumatic. They were present that Sunday morning and they sat under that message. I wonder, he says, how many advisors to us pastors would have said, Pastor Piper, can't you see that your people are hurting? Can't you come down out of the heavens and get practical? Don't you realise what kind of people sit in front of you on Sunday morning? He continues, some weeks later, I learned the story about this family and the husband took me on one side after a Sunday service and he said, John, these have been the hardest months of our lives. But do you know what's got us through? The vision of the greatness of God's holiness that you gave me that Sunday morning in January. That has been the rock we could stand on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we go through the storms of life, we so quickly forget how great and powerful you are. And so we don't pray as we should. We try to muddle through in our own strength. Father, forgive us. Thank you for reminding us this morning how great you are and how you tend all your flock like a shepherd. Please help us to remember that when we bring all our situations and challenges to you in faith, that you will comfort us and provide the supernatural resources we need to face them successfully. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.